There is one um, systematic theology volume that if you were to ask, you know, here you're an aspiring student, you say, I, I want to read uh, a, a quintessential systematic theology. What is it? Wh- where should I begin? Where is this gigantic 30-pound volume that I should crack open and begin reading? Someone would say to you, it is the work of Herman Bavink. And none of you care about that, so... I only say that to make this notation to build my argument. When asked what is the centrality of the gospel, what what is its pumping center? He would respond that we have a mediator who is Jesus Christ, God and man. This is the heart of the gospel. Many of us don't meditate upon the mediatorial work of Jesus. Little would we identify it with being the heart of the gospel. Or as perhaps someone you would know a little bit closer read maybe some of his popular books or or heard of him speaking. His name is J.I. Packer. He would summarize that the mediatorial work summarizes the central theme of Scripture, answers the biggest questions. The mediatorial work of Jesus. He then goes on to say, if we were asked, each of us right now, if I were to ask you and we did a popcorn where you raise your hand and I were to ask you, what is the most important verse in the Bible? Many argue that you would hear immediately John 3.16, right? Or then everybody would kind of give their their, their verse that they've memorized if you've ever heard of Awana, you were growing up in Awana getting your verse memory badges going. Maybe a verse that spoke to you at that time or perhaps some other. Packer would respond, the most important verse in the Bible, if we could say there is, right, we could argue, that's illegitimate to argue that there's one more, but just go with me. If there were to isolate out of the text of Scripture the most important verse of the Bible, he would put forward to you, it is 1 Timothy 2.5. You're like, I don't think I've even heard that one. I'm missing the most important. There's a common thread between his thinking and Bavink. And it is this... Maybe you do know the verse, but could I read it for you, 1 Timothy 2.5, if this is, as we look at our text, perhaps the central verse that our hearts and minds ought to consider. I just simply read it. You don't have to turn there, but maybe you want to right now get in good and underline it. it, was, it was, you knew it was the most important. No, just kidding. Um, it would be this, Paul to Timothy, for there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, 
verse 6 then continues about his mediatorial role is he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He would look back and say that, it, that, that, that is the critical piece of both testaments, that we have a mediator. Calvin then comes along, so you kind of draw a line. You're going uh, kind of, well, you would go historically, Packer, Baving, Calvin. But a common thread drawn through all of them as they isolate this importance in the gospel, the pumping center of the gospel is this idea or this, should I say, truth that we have a mediator. He explains it this way. It is Christ alone. So if we came in here with any other notion in our mind, these men are seeking to compile a testimony, or rather, I am compiling their testimony against you. And by that way, for you. That he would say, it is Christ alone who connects heaven and earth. That's what Pax said. That, that, that's the exact idea. That is why it is the most important verse we hear. We have a mediator, without which heaven and earth could not connect. So then Calvin, it is Christ alone then who does connect. Heaven and earth, he is the only, that it, it is Christ alone, he is the only mediator. That's it, the only one who reaches from heaven down to the earth. He alone, Christ he alone is the medium through which the fullness of all celestial blessings flows down to us and through which we in turn, once the blessings flow through him to us, we then in turn ascend to God. How? Through him. There is nobody else. That, these men would say, is the summary of the Testaments. There is no other name. There is no other man. There is no other God-man. Whereby heaven reaches down and the earth can reach up. But in him alone, he is the only mediator. So to our text then this morning, if that would hold, we have a significant comment before us this morning, don't we? In verse 15 of chapter 9, therefore he, that is Christ Jesus, is the mediator. So we have stumbled our way right upon what some would argue is the center heartbeat pumping pulse of the gospel. 9.15, exploring the meteor, uh, meteor, mediator, I, I can't miss the E, uh, otherwise I'm, he's a meteor, <laughs> mediator, grant me forgiveness as I go, that's going to be tricky. So we're at the center of the gospel now. 
there are three then aspects, I hope, with you and I together to consider regarding Jesus' mediatorship. Three critical aspects. We must get this. We must get this together. Three vital aspects of Christ's mediation. I'm only going to cover two this morning because I tried to get to three and it was going to be like seven pages. And I got my watch back this week. So I know I have time constraints. So we're down to two pages. So I'm only going to be able to do two. Um, But it's vital. The first one that we need to think about, and it might come a little bit easier, regarding Christ's mediatorial work. Number one, the context of Christ's mediation. We have to grasp the context of Christ's mediation. That's important for you and I this morning. Each of us who are here, we have to grasp the context of Christ's mediation so that his actual work as a mediator makes sense. So, so what is the context or the realm or the amphitheater within which this work of being a mediator makes sense? Not out of the air or in isolation. Like, he is a mediator. Great! But we think, what is he mediating? What does that even mean? What, what does that imply? So we have to grasp, right, the, the like, uh, center, the amphitheater, the area within which the context of where that makes sense. So, number one, three vital aspects, but number one is just grasping the context of his mediation. Number two, then, we'll move on. We will make it to number two, I'm confident, is the nature of Christ's mediation. So to the nature of it, and that is where I'm going to ask you with me where we might, and I'm just prepping you for this, we might together begin to do this, and it won't be the first time, and it might not be the last time, where we may perhaps come to a place in the road where we begin to uh, widen a little bit. But then, as always, I convince you of my position, and you're with me in the end, as we then do conclude of one mind. So I'm going to ask you, once we get to the nature of his mediation, the nature, so we're thinking context, where does that take place, what is the context, how does that even make sense, and what is the idea of mediation, to then say, and then watch how he then mediates. And I say, this is how, and you're like, I don't know. Exactly. We are unconvinced in that section over there. But I will win him over. I am sure. How then is he mediating? What is the nature of it? And uh, there I'm going to ask you together. Let's think and observe. So we're looking at the text, and then we're thinking about it hard, and then we're coming together to the same conclusion that I have, and then we'll pray. All right, so let's begin. Number one, what is the context of Christ's mediation? Uh, If we are stumbling right in upon the center of the gospel, what is the context of Christ's mediation? Um, Verse 15 is where we're going to spend all our time. So let's, let's think and observe together here on the context of mediation that the book has been building or the sermon has been growing toward and helping us grasp the context within which Christ does mediate. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. 
right there, it makes sense to you. You know the context of his mediation. It's given you right there in the text. The context of his mediation is a covenant. There's the context. That's the amphitheater. That's the area that he is mediating in. He is mediating in a new covenant. That's his mediation. He is mediating a covenant. It is distinctly a new covenant that he mediates. You see that right there in the text. That's, that, that's, that's the slow pitch right down the middle. Everyone hit a home run. You, you see it. That, that, there it is. It's clearly accessible to me. It is a new covenant that he then mediates is the context. Compare that to verse 9 and 10 of chapter 8 just to draw a clear contrast between chapter 8 and chapter 9 where we are. Look at chapter 8 and look at verse 9 and 10. Or, or even we could step back to verse 8 to grasp the context of Christ's mediatorial work. Verse 8, for he finds fault, and we've already covered all of this, with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, and we look to Christ, declares, Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. So the whole context of old covenant and new covenant is covenant. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And then look at the contrast of the work of the covenant and with the house of Judah. And this covenant that he is going to begin to establish is specifically in there in the text, verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's not like that one. And he explains the context where he gave them that covenant. The day I took them out by the hand to bring them to the land of Egypt, uh, out of the land of Egypt. For, and this is what's principally not going to be like the covenant that is new. Look in the old. They did not continue in my covenant. Then he goes on in verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And then we arrive in chapter 9 through the blood sacrifice of Christ and verse 15 then says, therefore he is now the mediator of what? The old covenant that was just like the one I made with their fathers? No, a new covenant. What is so new about this covenant? Well, if you look at verse 9 in verse, yeah, the first portion of verse 9, in chapter 8. What did they do to the covenant that God made with them? They departed from it. Do you see that? The covenant I'm going to make that is new is not like the old because they didn't do what in the old covenant? They did not continue in it. What is, what is the glory of a new covenant then? The provision and the promise of the covenant. You will continue in it. It's not like the old one. It is promissory and provisionary. How much does this covenant provide? Do I get in by grace and stay in by obedience? 
do I get in by grace and stay in by grace? It's not like the old one. When I took them out and delivered them by redemption and they didn't stay in it. It's a new one. Where I brought them out of Egypt and I placed them in the heart of my land. And they will stay in it. It is provisionary and promissory. Is it conditional? No. It is unconditional. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, how could it be unconditional? What about the conditions that, that, that to, 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 to be and to do? What about the conditions of the life of the covenant, getting in the covenant, and life in the covenant? What about the conditions? This new covenant provides and promises all that is required. The conditions are even granted. How can he grant the conditions that are required? Don't I have to ascend? Don't I have to do? How can he also grant unconditionally the conditions that are required? You sang about it already this morning. We looked at it already for several chapters. The conditions, you see, please listen, please. The conditions have been met. Wait a minute, I thought you said it's unconditional. To you, because the conditions have been met by Christ. Therefore, you get in by the performance of another who met all the conditions and then imputed them to your account. The new covenant is unlike the old because it's promissory and provisionary. All that is required is granted. How can he grant that to sinners? Because Christ achieved it in his obedience. So you get in and you stay in. You got in by the performance of another and you'll stay in by the performance of another. So on Tuesday when your performance slowing down, guess whose performance isn't? The object of your faith, his performance is never waning. But that performance stands and does what for you when your performance is? It intercedes. It's not like the old. It's radically, radically and gloriously different. What are the two specific provisions that are here in this text of verse 15 that I want to point you to in the new covenant, this new and gracious provisionary covenant? What are two very specific things that you could jot down or note in your heart and mind that are provided and granted 
to you by the work of another. There are two provisions specifically I want to draw your attention to through the text that are yours by faith in Christ. Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive. What is the provision, number one? What is the provision? The promised eternal inheritance. That's the provision of a new covenant. How long is your inheritance going to last? Is it tenuous? Is it time-oriented? Is it subject to decay? Is it ready to be passing away? Is it obsolete like the old covenant? No, it is eternal. It remains forever. That is the provision of the new covenant. A provision of an eternal inheritance. Second provision that Christ then does by his obedience has mediated through the covenant, continues to mediate on your behalf, is a provision of eternal redemption. You see that in verse 12 of the same chapter 9 when we covered it last week, but we just draw upon it quickly to say here is the unconditional provision that Christ has granted and achieved and does now mediate Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus, what did he do by that blood means? What has he achieved and what is he providing in a new covenant arrangement? Eternal redemption. These are the two provisions to all who look to him by faith. An inheritance that does not fade away. And a redemption that cannot be lost. Both are bound up in him. This is not like the old. But is a blessing of the new. The conclusion then to the context of Christ's mediatorial work, the mediation is a new covenantal context. That's the context that he's mediating to you, that he's bringing heaven down to earth, and through him we respond and we ascend to heaven, and we are cloaked in this union with what is called imputed righteousness. That means a righteousness that is not our own is granted to our account. Where does this righteousness come from? From the sky? from abstract thinking, from active obedience. It's not hypothetical. It's not like he did a good thing. And maybe we'll get in on it. He achieved all that was required. And that obedience is imputed to the account of the disobedient. And an inheritance is forever established in him. And redemption that lasts forever is also bound up in him. In this new covenantal arrangement. The apostle would say in chapter 7, verse 22, this then. And I think you would agree at this point. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. righteousness, eternal inheritance, and an eternal redemption is a better covenant. 
now you're with me. You're with me at this point. And here we come to the fork in the road. And I'm going to turn around and just grab all of you and take you with me down my pathway with unassailable logic. Maybe not. This is the part where we need to think together. So we know the context or the amphitheater, the area within which Christ is actively mediating. Here it is, here it is, here it is. Heaven is reaching down to earth, and in turn we see it, and we're drawn up to ascend. In Him, in Him alone, there is no other, because He's the only obedient servant. And shares and mediates that obedience. And then we are not in a relationship, we're in a covenant You know, relationships kind of come and go. Feelings are in and out. I'm not sure if they like me this week. It's not how it works. With Christ, it's boom! <laughs> you know. We're in a covenant. He cut it in his own flesh, and he bore me in it. And I am bound to him and he to me. For a few days, till I send a nasty text. No. <laughs> I am bound in him forever. That's the context of his mediation. Now, what he is then mediating, how does he mediate? This is the second piece. How is this mediation occurring? So right now, um, you're all here, and, and you're hearing of a covenant that, that Christ has achieved and that he then mediates. Now the question on your mind is, how do I become connected to this mediation or the benefits of the mediation? So let, let's pretend for a moment. This, this fist is, is Christ, okay? This is the idea, not in an idolatrous fashion that the reformers would kill us for. But let's just say an idea, a word picture, Christ is here, right? So, and, and you're, the question on your mind is, you're here. Here's the steeple. Here's all the people. Here. <laughs> it, here's you. And the question is, okay, so he's, he is a mediator. That is what he is by office. He is a mediator of a new covenant. This new covenant didn't come out of nowhere. It is by his obedience. That's who he is. He is the Lord of the covenant and the servant of the covenant. And so he is the mediator of this covenant. Now the question on my mind is how do I get connected to his mediations of this covenant? What he's mediating out. Chapter 8. I will remember their sins no more. You say, I want to hear that. And I want to better than hear it. I want to be united to it. That's the question. Here I am. I agree, but I have a question. How do I get connected to the mediation and then share in that covenant? How do I do it? This is the, necess or the, the nature of his mediation. What is the nature of it? So we all agree he does it, but what is the nature of it? Okay, great. We're together. 9.15, the nature of his mediation. I want to point a couple of pieces out of verse 15 that is going to help us understand and grasp what is being said here about the nature of his mediation. Now that we know he mediates, we know what it is that he's mediating, but we're wondering how we're intersecting his mediation of these benefits. Notice verse 15. Let's kind of take our eyes and just peer through the text. Verse 15. Therefore, and we're going to get to that. that, that was part three. So just skip the therefore. We'll get there. But verse, therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant. We've already got that. Good. So that, notice the proposition, how it's going to relate. So that he is this mediator, so that, so now you're seeing why he's mediating. How it is he's going to mediate. He's mediating so that those who are called, this is why he's mediating, this is how he's mediating. So that those who are called may receive. Do you see that? Here he is mediating. Here's the question. How do I connect to that? He is mediating generally with no aim, with no goal, with no end. He's just mediating. No, he is mediating with a goal. Mediating with an end in mind. What is the end? What is the goal of such mediation? Or what is its aim? What is the aim of the mediation? That those who are called may receive. That's the aim of the mediation. Is he taking these new covenant accomplishments, these blessings, this active and passive obedience, and throwing it out into space? Seeing where it lands. Okay, it landed. I wonder what's going to occur. No, he isn't. He is mediating this new covenant content so that with a purpose that those who are called will receive it. It's going out. Here he is. Here we are. He's mediating so that we'll receive it. With an aim. In other words, here is the term that, that, that I want to kind of say is the nature of his mediation. And now we begin to go into the fray. But I'm drawing you in. The nature of his mediation is what we would call effectual. It is an effectual mediation. Now you're saying, okay, 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 all right. Then clarify for me what is necessary here. What do you mean by effectual? What do you mean by that? So now, I, 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 do you see what I've done to you? I've said it, I've, I've stated how it's occurring, and now I'm moving you over here by one term. I'm saying this is occurring, he's mediating it in, with an aim and a goal. And that means that this that goes out, that he mediates, is effectual effectual in its nature. It cannot be anything but effectual. That means what? What do you mean by effectual here so that I can just follow where you're going? Let me carefully read it because I don't want to make a major mistake here in formulating it. The answer of what I mean by effectual is this. A mediation, okay, here we are, still in the same picture here. He is mediating effectually. That means this mediation, these benefits that are being mediated, is a mediation that ensures, now I've given you another term, ensures a positive response to the contents being mediated. And everybody's taking a deep breath. Or maybe not. 
What do you mean by effectual? That he is effectually mediating. It's not the feather that's doing this number. It is doing this number. That, 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 that's the, that, that's the, the, the mediation work of Christ. It's going out at a goal and it is achieving that for which it goes out for. Flowing from the sun. It is effectual. It ensures a positive response to the contents being mediated. We hear it and we say yes to it. Now, I think you're all following. We need to specify a little bit, don't we? I think we all agree. We need to specify what we're saying here, that it ensures a positive response to it. It goes out like this now. Now here's the picture. It goes out like this. Boom. And this says, yes. Boom. This work makes for this response. And it ensures this outcome. So, this is the question that you're asking me. I know it is. Are you saying that Christ's mediation of the gospel, that is the covenant of grace, are you here saying to us, that Christ's mediation is coercive. And it goes out from him and we say, I don't want it. And he says, yes, you do. And now I have to go to church. And there's them among us who found out they were elect and begrudge it until their day of death even then sit and think I didn't necessarily want to be here but he made me go here that is a straw man that, that is something out there that doesn't occur so we might have a different idea a, a bad idea of so that, that surely sounds like what you're saying I, I'm hearing that it ensures a positive response and what if they don't want a positive response he ensures it so it's coercive no no are you saying that it forces by coercive. Are you saying that it forces men and women against their wills to receive that which he commands? Is he forcing that? To receive that which he commands and demands against their own wills? And my answer to that is absolutely not. I am not saying that. You say, I think you are. I'm not. Let me say this about effectual. Christ's mediation, and let us be clear, let me be clear, is in no sense, no sense, not a little sense or a lot of sense, no sense coercive. It is in no sense coercive. One more time. Christ's mediation is in no sense coercive, but is Holy creative. Now I'm walking a fine line of language, aren't I? Not really. No, we're not. Let's turn to Romans 4 just briefly. Romans 4, 
just to be able to strengthen our grasp of, of thinking and observing from this text of 915. I don't want to run away now and prove something and then come back. But, this, but in order to get to what he's saying here, we have to just kind of add a little insight into it so that we properly honor verse 15. So that is, it is in no way coercive, but it's rather wholly creative. And here in Romans 4, if you're there in Romans 4, this is where Paul is dealing with the promise of Abraham, which again is belonging to which covenant? The covenant of grace. The same promise that we began studying in Hebrews. So he's dealing in the same context, the promise made to Abraham. Okay? And that's what we're discussing here, is the application of the promise made to Abraham. So we're, we're wholly on consistent grounds here of the realm of our discussion. We're not kind of you know, cherry-picking here and throwing it over at that and being like, aha, did you see that? Okay, so we're, we're functioning in a, a proper manner. Now, when I say it is not coercive, but it is wholly creative, notice how Paul describes Abraham's belief in the work of God, or the effectual calling of God. Chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. And he's discussing what? The promise. What promise? The promise we're discussing in Hebrews. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, adherence of the promise, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Who's the offspring? How is guaranteed? This promise of grace is guaranteed in God to the offspring. Who's the offspring, not only of the adherent of the law that is Old Covenant, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham? They're the children. That's why adherence to the promise is guaranteed by faith. Who is the father of us all? Verse 17, here's how we say it begins. He describes it as wholly creative. The work of grace and the application of the guarantee and the production of faith. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God, here's the description of how you come to have and possess this faith in the promise. Example or exhibit Abraham. In the presence of the God in whom he believed. So here's Abraham's response to God. And then the description of God in Abraham's believing is what? Verse 17. Who gives life to the dead. Do you see the connection there? So, so it's guaranteed the outcome is being ensured by God in Abraham. How can God do this? He gives life to the dead. And furthermore, when we say holy creative, Paul does the same thing. Well, that's kind of why we're doing it. Paul's doing it. Grounding it in creation. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then check verse 18 out. In hope he believed against hope. Do you see how Abraham laid hold of the promise? By faith. How did Abraham come to have faith? By God's coercive work in his life, forcing Abraham 
to receive and force feed. You're going to take it. You're going to take it. Oh, I don't want it. I don't want it. No, it's not coercive. It's creative. It's grounded in the God who does what in the call? Who does what in the mediation? He gives life to the dead. He calls, woo, mediation. He calls into existence this one now. He calls into existence things that did not exist. Existence. It is creative, not coercive. It didn't exist before. And here it is. And it's sourced in the effectual working of God. Who said, and Paul's saying this, he's alluding to this, right? When, what, what do you think he's referring to in the work of redemption? When he speaks, he calls into existence things that did not exist, and poof, there they are. Where is he grounding that? Genesis 1, right? Let there be light. What occurred? Light. It's creative, not coercive. What do I mean by this? And again, I know, I know we're, 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 we're thinking together. I can tell. I'm looking out through all the glasses and through the, all the eyes, and I can tell we're all trying to think together. What does that mean then if it's a creative work of God? That it creates within men and women a desire to do that which they did not desire to do before. It didn't exist before. And through his creative work, not coercive work, he creates within the heart a desire to do what you didn't desire to do before. Let there be light. Boom! Effectual calling. Oh, I thought the calling went like this. Oh, the calling goes like this. Something like that. I don't know if that's the conclusion, but that's the idea. There's a response. And it is a positive one to that which is being mediated. Thus we would conclude this way. If we put Romans 4, what we just read about God who calls into existence, gives life to the dead, and calls into existence that which does not exist in the act of believing. If he does that, and Jesus is here mediating that, so that those who are called will receive. That makes his calling effectual then we would take Romans 4 and we take Hebrews 9 and we put it together like this perhaps we would conclude that what God does speak and Christ does mediate is effectually accomplished Now to the particulars of our passage then. I want to conclude our time by looking at just three effectual accomplishments or positive responses that Christ ensures through his mediatorial work. There are three very specific effectual accomplishments his mediation is doing. His mediation goes out effectually and it ensures a positive response to the one it is effectually mediating to. And what are those Three over here, so we would say mediation is going out, there's a positive responding, and if we were to look at all that's taking place in the mediatorial work and the positive response to the effectual calling, we would go like this. Here they are, they're working, 
and we're isolating out from that three things that are occurring in there. Three effectual accomplishments that Christ does mediate through the preaching of the gospel. Three of them in our text as we conclude. Number one, an effectual mediatorial work, an effectual accomplishment is number one, what we've already kind of touched on, and that is effectual calling. Verse 15 right there, so that he's mediating with a purpose and aim or goal, so that those who are what? Called. May receive the promised eternal inheritance. It's effectual. The call that goes out through his mediation is effectual. John 10. I don't have time. John 10. Jot that down. John 10 is there where Jesus speaks of being the good shepherd. And he speaks out and he says, I speak to the sheep. And guess what the sheep do? They hear me. And they know me. And I know them. And when they hear me, guess what they do? They follow me. Because when I call, it effectually works in them. Because they're my sheep. Effectual calling here in our text, but I don't have time to go elsewhere. Number two, effectual redeeming. I want you to see this in the text. That is, the redemption that he did achieve is effectually applied. Again, if you could, just look briefly as I, as I, as I draw your eyes to the text in just a moment. Please. I don't know if this is airtight. I'm working it out live. So I, I didn't sit in the office this week doing this. So I'm not sure how this is working. In my mind, it works as it helps me. So if, if it's a major problem, email me later and I'll try to work it out and be like, I won't repeat that next time. Christ's redemption, his blood offering, what we already saw in chapter 9, his blood offering that he did offer as a means to an inheritance of an eternal redemption. That blood offering isn't doing this. Whimsically falling wheresoever it will. That redemption occurred and is applying like this. Boom! How do you see that in the text? Look at the last portion of verse 15. They may receive the promised eternal inheritance since, and this is why, since here are the grounds. This is the ground of their receiving. The inheritance since a death has occurred. Well, what did that death actually do? It redeems them. Do you notice what it didn't do? We have to think. And I know we might not walk hand in hand here. So I give that away to you. I don't want you to consider this a bully pulpit. Or like, oh, he's all, you know, how he's going to be. I am. I am going to be that way. But just think with me, even if you remain unconvinced, think with me that a death has occurred that redeems, does not make redeemable, but redeems. 
So that I would suggest to you, Christ is not a substitute or a sacrifice in a hypothetical sense. He lived, he died, he did raise, and he does mediate for a real, definite, and actual people. Effectual calling, effectual redeeming. Finally, the third one as we close our time, I know I'm going long today, our third one is effectual saving. As the book of Hebrews often looks at our saving as we consider perseverance, the theme throughout the book is often looking at salvation in its final outcome. That, that's kind of the nature of salvation in the book of Hebrews. It's looking toward that final act of deliverance when it speaks of persevering, getting you from here to there. That's what it's speaking of in salvation terms there. And that's what this text concludes with is an effectual saving. And I want your heart to rejoice in this truth. Verse 28, so Christ having been offered. We'll get to the other pieces of the text, but this is how we're handling this first portion of the text. I'm not skipping the whole chapter. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Chapter 2 will help us understand who the many are. The children, the congregation. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Effectually, to those whose sins He did bear. That's why he can show up again. And guess what? Not to deal with the sin. Because he already dealt with it. So you say, come Lord Jesus. Wait, when you get here, don't deal with my sin. I won't. I already did. Why are you here? To save you. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Be blessed. It is a foregone conclusion for those whose faith object is Jesus. It is a foregone conclusion. You will be saved. As the roller coaster ride concludes, you will be saved. But what if, come hell or high water, I guess Christ has walked through on dry land? So will you. You will be saved. Pilgrims on the way. But we are definitely on the way. <laughs>